We will let the boys and girls uh, up through age eight be dismissed to the children's class. If you would like them to go, parents, that is up to you. Their class will start now, and I'm going to ask the rest of us to take a copy of the Bible from somewhere. If you can find one and turn to Matthew 24 this morning, we're studying together through the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew 24 and to 25 will be our text for this morning. As you may or may not remember, Matthew has organized his material, the sayings and the works of our Lord, in five sort of main sections. Each one of them seems to end with an extended discourse or a body of teaching from our Lord. This passage, chapter 24 and 25, is the fifth and final discourse that culminates each of these uh, five sections. This one was prompted by two questions put to Jesus by his disciples. And you can see those two questions in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. Those two questions are, when, when excuse me, will these things be? That is, the destruction of the temple that Jesus has just predicted in the first two verses of that chapter. When will these things be? And the second question is, what, what will be the sign of your coming, your end of the end of the age? Now, those two questions were probably intertwined in the disciples' minds. I imagine that they assumed that the destruction of the temple would be the end, uh, that it would be uh, coincident with the appearing in glory of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. Jesus, however, begins to separate these in the way he responds to their questions. And in fact, in these three parables that make up the end of chapter 24 and into chapter 25, there are three parables of the parousia or the coming of Christ. And these three parables essentially instruct the disciples, listen to me, to be ready for a long delay between these two events. To be ready for a period of time that was longer than they may have imagined. Notice the recurring theme in these three parables. Every one of these parables makes this point. Chapter 24, verse 48 is the first time, if you want to underline each of these. In chapter 24, verse 48, Jesus is telling the story in which the, the, the servant says, my master is what? Do you see it? He's delayed. Okay. Now drop down to chapter 25, verse 5. Here's the second parable that Jesus tells. And in that story, in verse 5, it says that the bridegroom was, there's the word again, the bridegroom was delayed. And then, the third parable, look down in chapter 25, verse 19. You may want to underline this phrase. Now, after 
a long time, the master of those servants came. Each of these parables makes this point that there is an extended period. Jesus is disciples for something. For something that's longer than what they anticipated. And this is very helpful for us. It is encouraging for my faith. Because, listen folks, now frankly, it's been 2,000 years and we're all still waiting for the glorious appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the fullness, the consummation of all of those promises that were yes and amen in Jesus, but await their full manifestation in our world. We're still waiting for a new heavens and earth that is coming for the people of God. We're still waiting for the resurrection of our bodies and the entrance into that age to come, even though, as we've already seen, it's already here in one sense. The kingdom has already come, but in ways that cannot be observed, we're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And so we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and the skeptics are out there. Where is this coming you keep talking about? And, and it is encouraging that Jesus, even in his first advent, prepared his disciples with the understanding that there would be a long period, that there would be a delay in, in, in terms of what they expected and, and, and when he would come. So there are three parables in this section. Rather than reading them all together, I like to read them one by one, but you'll see, I think, that they really are all making the same basic point. The first is the parable of the servant who's left in charge of his master's household and the provisions for his master's household. Beginning with chapter 24 and verse number 45. 2445, Jesus says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day that he, when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In this first parable, Jesus tells of a servant, the servant of a master, a household owner, who gives to his servant a certain responsibility. Right? You see that in the text? The responsibility is that this servant would give to the household their food at the proper time. He was in charge of the pantry. He was in charge of the storehouse, the distribution of the, the goods that needed to be uh, used the resources for the everyday maintenance of the household. That was his job. 
And the burning question about this servant is, who then is the faithful and wise servant? Will this man be faithful and wise in what he's been given to do? And that really is the question that I want to put to you this morning. I think the question that this text intends, that by this saying, Jesus intends for you and I to ask ourselves, will we be faithful, good servants so that when the master comes back, we're ready? What will it look like to be faithful in all of these now 2,000 years of waiting? What will it look like to be a good and faithful servant? Well, notice in verse 48 that the master is delayed. This is not necessarily in terms of the master's timetable, but certainly in terms of the servant's expectation. The master is taking a whole lot longer to come back than this slave expected that he would. And the lengthening of that time frame heightens the sense of unexpectedness of the master's return. He, he might have expected him in the first few weeks or months or however long this period ended up being, but over time... Uh, the, 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 the sense of not knowing when it would be was, was heightened. It, it also highlights the servant's faithfulness. If, if he were to be wise, he's going to have to be faithful throughout this extended period. Remember, also, remember back to Jesus' basic admonition. Remember, after he had talked about when or what would be the sign of his second coming and of the end of the age, he said his basic answer was, nobody knows. Nobody knows when that's going to be. Nobody knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man will come. And his basic application then was found in chapter 24, verse 44, when he said, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The application was this, be ready all the time because you don't know when your Lord will return. Well, now the disciples' expectation was that Jesus would probably come again shortly after uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. But Jesus is warning them of a period of great delay in terms of their expectations. And friends, since the time of Jesus' second coming is unknown to us, we are supposed to be ready, not by looking for the signs of the times, but by living every single day in a way that pleases Him. Say, how can I be ready? How can I be awake when he comes? The answer is you work every single day in a way that pleases him. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be ready for the Lord's imminent coming. 
Remember that the master in the story gave his servant a job to do, right? It was distributing the household rations. And the question is, who then is a wise and faithful servant? And the answer is in verse 46. Look at the answer. I want everybody to look at it. Look at the answer. What does it look like to be a wise and faithful servant waiting for your master to come back? Here's what it looks like. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Here's what it looks like. The guy is getting up every day, and he's going to the storehouse, and he's unlocking it, and he's saying, what do we need for today to take care of the household? Every day he gets up, and he faithfully thinks that out. He plans that out. He takes care of the resources. He makes sure it's stocked up. Every day, day after day, and when the master comes and he finds his servant doing just that, that's a good servant. He's ready. He's ready for the master's return. Jesus doesn't want us wasting hours sitting in front of the internet, fretting or fuming over current events, wondering if this is the end of the world, and thinking to ourselves, surely Christ has got to return soon. As much as he wants us to just be faithfully doing exactly what he's called us to do every day. Faithfully taking daily care of those that he's left in your charge. Faithfully fulfilling the task that he's given you to do day after day after day. What does Jesus say? Blessed is that man, that servant, whom his master will, what? Find doing what he was given to do. I want to just put that to you in these terms. What is it that God has given you to do? What has he called you to do? What does it look like to be ready for the second coming of Jesus? It looks like getting up tomorrow and doing that. And doing it diligently and faithfully and carefully with an eye to His glory. On the other hand, what if that servant saw that his master was delayed, that he wasn't coming back anytime soon and and he decided that it, he could just do what he wanted to do and began to be selfish. He began to mistreat the other servants in the household. He begins to live a life of laziness and dissipation. Jesus says in the story, he, he eats and drinks with drunkards. Laziness, dissipation, mistreatment of others in the household, then Jesus says, if that, if the servant acts that way, then the master, verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect it, an hour that he does not know. By the way, that language is familiar, right? That language comes right out of verse 36, which is exactly what Jesus says about the parousia, of the second coming. It will be in a, in a day and an hour that you do not know. This master will come at an hour 
that he does not expect, an hour he does not know, and he will, verse 51, cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a picture of someone who's supposed to be the servant of God, like the people of Israel, who were supposed to be God's servants, but who yet mistreat the other servants. And of course, it was primarily from the Jews initially that persecution rained down upon the church in those earliest days. And Jesus says that servant will be judged severely. He will be banished from the household. And this really becomes one of the images that the Lord uses so often of eternal punishment in hell. It would be a place of weeping and a place of gnashing of the teeth. It would be a place of, on the one hand, sorrow and pain and sadness. And on the other hand, it will be a place of anger. I don't believe people in hell will be sorry for what they have done and wish that they could change. They'll, they'll, there's, there's an ongoing rebellion and anger against God for all eternity that characterizes unbelievers confirmed in that rebellion against God. This is the eternal destiny of those who mistreat the true people of God. And Jesus is going to enlarge on that later on in the end of chapter 25. And then he tells a second story, second parable. This parable, Jesus says, is about the kingdom of God, verse 1 of chapter 25. This is about the kingdom of God, but not primarily in its present form, but this is what the kingdom of God is as Jesus says in verse 1, what it will be like when Christ comes again. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the parable of the virgins as it's known. Um, It's not clear exactly what those ancient weddings were like, but 
these virgin girls are probably something like what we think of as bridesmaids today, a part of the, the wedding party. And they want, they're waiting to go out and to greet the groom and to proceed by torchlight into the wedding feast. And once again, just like in the last parable, Jesus makes a point to say that this wait would be longer than they expected. The bridegroom, verse 5, was delayed. Notice in the first story, you might have said, well, it was just the wicked person who said the bride, the, the master is delayed. But here, it's very clear that this is a, an essential element of Jesus' story. The master or the bridegroom here is delayed in terms of what they expected. So like the previous parable, the burning question is this. Will they be good bridesmaids? Will they be good wedding attendants, and what does it look like to be ready for the master? What does it look like to be um, good and faithful when the wait for the second coming is longer than what you expected? What does it look like to be wise? There were five who were wise, he says, and there were five who were foolish. What is it to be wise? Well, It's not that the wise ones stayed awake while the foolish ones slept. You might have thought that that would be the way the story would go. In fact, verse 5 says that they all became drowsy and slept. Um, They're not unduly criticized for that in the story. At least there's no overt sense that they're being criticized for that. Um, Even though in the last chapter... He did say to be awake and alert. The the imagery shifted here a little bit. What really makes these virgins wise is that they brought along extra oil to pour onto their torches so they'd be ready to relight them uh, when the bridegroom uh, came. Uh, Apparently, their torches were lit to start with, and and they're they're burning down, and and they've they've made preparations for an extended wait. Jesus doesn't tell us exactly what this oil represents. Um, it's tempting to try to think of something that it must picture, perhaps the Holy Spirit, so that these people know how to renew themselves and their faith in, in the Holy Spirit. While that's probably too speculative, the point is clear These five were wise because they were prepared to wait through a longer delay than the others. They were prepared to wait. The scoffers among us cry out, where is the promise of his coming? all this morning that the Lord's timetable is not ours, right? A day with the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. God doesn't measure out the timetable in a way that we expect. He is patiently waiting for all of the penitent to come to Him. But I want to encourage you to keep waiting and to wait with faith, believing that Jesus will, in fact, come again to persevere. Let me tell you, friends, your faith 
in Jesus' promise is being tested. And I encourage you to persevere because the day will come. This persevering faith is not something that anyone else can supply for you any more than these wise virgins could supply the oil for those who were foolish. Each of us, hear me, each one of us must be so convinced in our own minds of the certainty of God's promises that we are prepared to wait for their fulfillment. Are you convinced of the certainty of the promises of God that the Lord Jesus will in fact come for His own? How long are you prepared to wait and still believe that He will come again? True believers have now been waiting for nearly 2,000 years. But I want to remind you that the Old Testament believers waited twice as long for the coming of Christ the first time. From Genesis to Christ, and even from Abraham to Christ, nearly 2,000 years. And we ourselves are surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses to the faithfulness of the promises of God. His Son came exactly like He said that He would. And I want to remind you that He will come again. I believe it with all my heart. I hope that you do as well. And I hope that you will persevere in this faith, that this confidence in the promises of God is so certain that you are prepared to wait as long as it takes. Young people, will you persevere? Will you continue to wait after you bury your mom and your dad who believed in the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you continue to wait and believe and look for the coming of your Savior? Will you continue to live every day prepared to meet Him when He returns? I think that's really the point of these stories. This parable encourages us in just that regard. And then there's a third parable. The third parable sheds even more light on what it looks like to wait in faith. And this is the parable of the talents. A talent is a large sum of money. So chapter 5, beginning of verse, uh, 25, beginning of verse 14. You take a look at the Bible again. 25, 14. It says, For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. 
And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will make you, uh, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, I knew, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers." And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, you see in this story that the servants were left with responsibilities while they wait. They were given, each of them, huge sums of money to invest. Um, it's it's not absolutely clear, but it seems like a talent. Well, it's it's a it's a measure of weight for one thing. So I guess it depends on whether you're weighing out talents of gold or silver or some lesser metal. Generally, it would be silver, which in that case would make a talent, a single talent of silver, about twenty to thirty years uh, of earnings for the average worker. I mean, one talent, and one guy was given. Uh, given uh, five talents and another two and another one. So these men were given a, a good sum of money. This master was a wealthy man. This was the accumulation of, of, of wise investments over many years. And now he gives these uh, portions of his wealth to these uh, servants to invest on his behalf. To one he gives five, one, two, and one, one, each according to their ability. Again, we're not told explicitly by our Lord what these sums of money represent. Modern English, we use the word talent to refer to an ability. Um, but that's a totally different word. It just happens to be the same in English. But it certainly is one application of this passage. Um, these talents, I think, uh, this is a picture of all of God's gracious gifts to us and over which we are made to be stewards um, for His glory. 
to be more specific than that about what they represent is, I think, to be unnecessarily narrow in our application. So as we're thinking about these servants who have talents of money to invest, we're thinking about our abilities and our opportunities, our time that we are given by the Lord on this earth, our wealth and the resources that we possess, uh, our knowledge of the Word and of the Lord as a gift from His hand, the gospel itself which has been entrusted to us over which we are stewards in the world, all of the gifts of God, and they are given to each of us in differing amounts. We're all different, right? We're all gifted differently. And we're expected to be faithful, not with what we don't have, but with what we have been given, whatever that is. And once again, in the story, the master goes away for an extended period. Verse 19 says that he returns after a long time. So again, Jesus is hinting that there will be an an extended delay between these uh, events and and their expectation that that the Lord will come and it will be the end of the the world in in their lifetimes is, is probably it needs to be stretched out a bit. But when the master does return, that, servant who'd been given five talents of silver, he has turned it into ten, and the one who has two has turned it into four. And, and the point in this seems to be that each one of them had different abilities, and each one of them had been given different levels of resources over which to be stewards. But if they are faithful with what they have, then in the end, they both receive the exact same commendation, don't they? Well done, good and faithful servant, are the words that are spoken to the man who ends with ten in the same way that they're spoken to the man who ends with four. Your calling is to be faithful with what God has given you to do. Not to be envious, looking at what he has allotted to someone else, and not to be smugly superior because you've been given more to start with, but to be faithful. To faithfully serve your Lord every day, day in and day out, in the calling that God's given to you with the the knowledge and the resources and the energy and the ability and, and, and all of the things that God has given you every day to be faithful with those things. And for those who are faithful, Jesus teaches us that more is given to them. You've been faithful over a little, he says, I will give you much. And I can just imagine, you could hardly imagine what that much must be. If, if a little was 30 years worth of earnings, what greater responsibility are they given and what greater work will we be given to do in the age to come? 
Friends, I do not believe that our labors for the Lord's glory will come to an end at the end of this age and the second coming of Christ. No, it will be the beginning of a world that's greater than anything that we've seen now. And responsibilities and opportunities for service for our Lord Jesus that are beyond what we know now. And your your responsibilities and opportunities in that age, Jesus seems to indicate, rests largely on your faithfulness with what he's given you to do right now. Your faithfulness day in and day out, as long as the master is delayed. And finally, in the end, he says to these servants, both of them, enter into the joy of your master. And I want to remind you that the day is coming when we're going to enter into the immediate presence of our Lord Jesus, when there'll be no more separation and no more sense that he's far away from us, but that in his immediate presence, we will have joy that is beyond any joy that you've you've tasted with the Lord now. It'll be like an eternal banquet where right now you're just getting a little taste now and then of closeness with the Lord. Enter into the joy of your Lord, he says. This is what awaits those who faithfully serve the Lord in anticipation of His coming right now. But of course, as with each of the other parables, there is the possibility that someone would be would not be good and faithful. And there is this last servant in the story here who paints a very negative view, a harsh view of his master. He says, verse 24, I knew you were a hard man. I knew you to be a hard man. That you reap where you do not sow, gather where you don't scatter. And so I was afraid, he says, I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, this this was yours. I didn't take anything. I didn't do anything really bad. This is somebody who clearly doesn't love and appreciate his master. He portrays him in a very harsh light. He cares nothing about seeing the master's position improved. He cares only that his own is not endangered. And Jesus has taught his disciples all the way through this gospel that risk is at the heart of discipleship. He says, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find life. The truth is that this servant was wicked and slothful, the master said. You were a slothful servant. The truth is he was lazy and too concerned with his own affairs to have any interest in furthering the master's kingdom. This servant, the master said, would be condemned by his own words. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gathered where I didn't harvest, huh? 
all right, then you should have at least put my money to the bankers so that I could gather where I did not sow. But this kind of person has no interest in the things of the master, and his fate is to be cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which is also what Jesus has been saying all along. Whoever holds on to his own life in the end will lose it. Only the one who takes up his cross finds life. That's really the irony. If you live for yourself, then you'll end in eternal sorrow and anger. It is only when you invest your life for Christ and His kingdom that you'll find in the end you enter into eternal joy beyond anything you could have imagined. So if, if, if the question before us today is, how should we then live while we are waiting for the coming of our Lord? What should we do? What does it look like to be ready when Jesus comes back? What do those people look like who are really ready? What if you knew that Christ was coming today? Before the end of this Lord's Day, what should you do today? And the answer isn't what a lot of people have thought. We've all read about people who have become convinced that the Lord would come back on a certain day and who sold all their possessions and disengaged from the world, quit their job, went out on top of a mountain somewhere, to wait for him to come back. Right? You heard those stories? This is not the picture that Jesus is presenting over and over and over again in each of these parables. What does it look like to be ready for Jesus when he comes back? It looks like this, that you're living every day faithfully, earnestly, for his glory, doing what he's given you to do. Living out your calling. The temptation is to look around and to see the world getting worse and to just sort of give up trying to make any difference. You know, we all too easily get filled with anxiety or else with anger at what's going on around us. And we sit down and we just get absorbed in that. And we get distracted. We forget that God's time frame is not ours. That we must persevere even though His coming is long delayed. And we persevere by being faithful day by day by day. Day in, day out. You know, friends, nations come, empires fall, Generations come and go. Where is the promise of His coming? But for those who have faith, they are faithful in what God has given them to do. 
they get up every day knowing this may be the day that the Lord comes back. So what does it look like for me to be ready? I go out and I do the next right thing. I do the next right thing, the thing that God has given me to do today. I am faithful and careful to serve God intentionally for His glory today. And if He comes back today and He finds me so doing, then I hope to hear from His his mouth, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, let it be so with us that we would not be distracted and consumed with events going on around us, that we would be distracted from doing the things that you've given us to do, but that we would be faithful.